All right, well, open God's word with me, if you would, to Psalm 123. Psalm 123. Let's read it together. This is a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Our Father, as we come to your word now to, to see what you have for us, we pray that you would use it uh, in our lives uh, for whatever purpose uh, you have designed. And we would give you all the thanks. In Christ's name, amen. I have been thinking about this psalm in the last uh, few weeks. I'm thinking all of these psalms here, this collection of psalms. But I've been thinking about this psalm. Does anybody have any problems, any troubles, any trials, anything? Yeah, <laughs> it's almost silly to ask, isn't it? And as we'll see, this psalm has a particular context. And yet, we can make application of this psalm to a lot of other situations, a lot of other contexts, as it were. We know that when you're looking and studying the scripture, there's only one interpretation of any scripture. It just means one thing. However, there can be many applications. And it's the way that this psalm um, it allows us, affords us the opportunity here to look at a, the specific context, but then to make application to many other things in our lives. And so that's what I hope to do this morning. Very simple message. Really, it's not a very long psalm. You know, how much can I say out of four verses, right? So it's a short psalm, really a short message. And I hope just to accomplish two things. First of all, uh, to challenge you, to challenge me, to challenge all of us, to be people of faith, to trust in the Lord, but also to encourage us because God is merciful. And that's for our encouragement. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who called this the Psalm of the Eyes. You notice how many times he spoke of the eyes here. To you I lift up my eyes. Behold, as the eyes of servants, as the eyes of a maidservant, so our eyes look up to you. The psalm of the eyes. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want to, first of all, just speak of the context. First of all, the broader context, but then the immediate context. Now, I know that we've talked about the songs of ascent before, but maybe the young people or maybe someone just doesn't quite remember it. And so we'll cover the, the context and then we'll talk about the immediate context. 
Well, the larger context, of course, is the book of Psalms. And there are 150 Psalms. We sometimes call them chapters. They're not really chapters like the rest of the books of the Bible. They're songs. And so we're looking at song number 123. And so these are just songs. The book of Psalms that contains all of the Psalms, you know that it's divided into three books. And we know that the Psalms do not have just one author. And it wasn't written at one particular time. There are many authors of the Psalms. David, of course, is the, you know, the most frequent author of the Psalms. And the first Psalm is not Psalm number one. Uh, the first Psalm, I believe, is 130, I just having a, a, a spasm, 137, 130, 90 maybe. I think it's 90 actually. 90? Yeah, Psalm 90. Written about 1,500 years ago, 1,400 and some odd years, written by Moses. That's pretty old. The most recent psalm, I think, is 136 or 137, um, written during the time of the Babylonian captivity, right at the end of the captivity. So the psalms really span about 1,000 years, from approximately 1,500 to approximately 500 B.C. Someone, we can't say for sure, but someone acting as an editor put all of the psalms together. Perhaps Ezra, many people think it was Ezra, but someone put all of the psalms together, and that's how we have the book of Psalms, and they are arranged according to the editor. Now we assume, you know, the editor was led by God, inspired by God to make this arrangement, but the editor put the psalms in this order. So a long time span, many writers, and someone just collected them together. I say just collected, someone gathered them together, and that's how we got our book of psalms. This particular psalm, as you know, we read it, is a song of ascent. Here it's in the plural, a song of ascents. It is a song of ascent, and this collection starts in, or in Psalm 120 and goes through 134. 120 through 134 is a collection of songs called the Song of Ascent. And as you know, the, um, the Israelites, or we could say you know, in Judaism, uh, there were three festivals, three annual festivals in Jerusalem, and they were required to go to at least one of those festivals per year. And so wherever they were, they would start a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem is a city on a hill, they always had to travel up. And so they are ascending, going up to Jerusalem. And so these are songs of ascent. And they are collected, and someone put them together to be sung while they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Sometimes they're referred to, I think uh, Sinclair Ferguson and others refer to them as songs for the backpack. Songs for the backpack. 
while you're traveling, you can just take your backpack, get your songbook out, and start walking and start singing. And all of those who are with you would just sing as you traveled. You know, they, they didn't jump, uh, jump in the family car or fly. You know, they walked. And sometimes some of them traveled for months going there and back. Very, very hard and often very dangerous. And so the first of these songs of ascent, number 120, it, we get the idea that they're just setting out. They're just starting their journey. And by the time we get to Psalm 134, they're saying, everybody there, all of you servants of the house of the Lord, just bless the Lord. It's like waving goodbye taking that last snapshot as it were with the you know with the forest ranger or with the security personnel or someone you know their family members you're waving goodbye in psalm 134 and so this is a collection of songs for uh, for Israel to sing as they travel to Jerusalem for an annual feast so that's the larger context, how it fits into the book of Psalms and you know how this fits in with the Song of Ascent. But there is an immediate context. Now, we don't know for sure who wrote this. Nobody knows. It, it might be Asaph. It might be someone else, but we know that it's written sometime uh, while they are in their captivity. And the immediate context, as we we're told, is a context of scorn, of derision, of contempt, of scoffing, of verbal, emotional, and perhaps even physical abuse on God's people. Now, this would fit the travel because as they traveled, the world held them in contempt. They mocked them. They scoffed at them. Uh, they robbed them, mistreated them. And so that seems to be uh, describing the context, but this individual person, whoever he is, is in a sense, he, he starts out, uh, in verse 4 by saying, look, we've had enough. Can't take it anymore. Our soul has had more, more than enough. What does that mean? We're filled up with it. We're at the top. We can't take this anymore. You ever feel like that? Remember, there's only one interpretation, but there's many applications. We often feel that way. We often feel like, Lord, what are you doing? I just can't take it anymore. Our soul has had more, more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease and of the contempt of the plot. The scorn of those who are at ease and contempt of the proud. Now, this part of the psalm and the way this psalm is arranged is very similar to Psalm 73. Here's what I mean. Verse 1 is actually the conclusion. 
Okay? Verse 1 is the conclusion of the psalm. This is where he gets. But he starts out crying out for mercy, for we've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough. But in the end, to you, to you I lift my eyes. And it's the same arrangement in Psalm 73. We won't have to turn there, but it's a familiar psalm. You know it well. It's the psalm where Asaph says, um, I was envious of the wicked until I went to the sanctuary. And in his complaint, as it were, you know, he starts out in verse 1 with a conclusion. Truly, surely, God is good to Israel with a qualification to those who are pure in heart. So he starts out with this conclusion. Surely God is good. What did it take for him to get there? He says that I almost lost my faith. He says, I, I stumbled and fell and I almost fell away. What's he confessing? He's confessing, I almost lost it. You ever feel like that? Maybe not to that degree, but he, he, he was sure that he was going to fall in his faith. He's just being honest. Uh, I forget who called him. He's, he's the honest doubter. <laughs> he's just telling us like it is. I, I just had enough. I, I thought I was going to leave God. Why? Because it didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair. God didn't seem good to me. Because I looked at the world, and I looked all of the wicked, and I saw their prosperity. And I saw how easy they had it. How good they had it. Look at the prosperity. Uh, everything's just easy for them. Now, that's really a rationalization. As if all of the wicked are prosperous without any problems. <laughs> we know better than that. He would know better than that. But that's the way you paint the picture. You have to rationalize. You have to justify your complaint and your doubt. So I looked at the wicked and I saw how easy they had it. They're on easy street. And not only that, but look at all the people who are running to them. You know, in a little conversation yesterday, uh, Taylor Swift has over a billion followers. A billion followers. And we can't get 30 people to church. But a billion people will follow her. What's wrong with this picture? And so some look at things like that. They've got it so easy. Look how successful and popular they are. And I'm the righteous person. I'm trying to do what's right. And I'm suffering. I'm just barely scraping by. And he's ready to throw in the towel. But something happened. When he went to the sanctuary. When he went to the house of God. And there he remembered something. Just going into the sanctuary to worship God. He remembered their end. You know, it was his eschatology that needed to get straightened. His 
thoughts on final things. Because in the end, on the day of judgment, where will the prosperous be on that day? He says, they will be destroyed. And only the righteous will be with God. And he's, it's like, oh yeah. What was I thinking? And then he recounts all that God has done. How good and kind and, you know, benevolent God is. So that in the end, he could start out by saying, truly, surely God is good, isn't he? It doesn't always look like it. We look at the world and they're prospering. They're all, you know, on easy street. Yeah, right. And we're just all suffering for Jesus. But you got to remember how it ends. Well, that's what the writer is doing here. He's starting with the conclusion. He's starting with a proclamation of faith, a proclamation of trust in God. And that's what we have here. And so our first observation here is from verse 1. The faith and trust, the confidence that he shows in God. To you, I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Enthroned in the heavens. I lift my eyes. Now, we don't have to lift our eyes literally to heaven, do we? But our eyes of faith. Our eyes of faith lift up to heaven. Why? Because that's where God is. He is the sovereign God who is enthroned in the heavens. So in spite of the contempt and the scorn and the abuse that we encounter, we lift our eyes up above all of this. Above all of the sorrow, all of the trials, all of the trouble, all of the, the ailments, the pain. We lift our eyes to heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We lift our eyes to heaven in faith. Because really, this entire psalm is wrapped up right here. It's praying in faith and making a, a, a faith proclamation. I lift my eyes to you. You who are enthroned, the sovereign God of the universe. And that's really what overcomes the world. That's what John said. What overcomes the world? Our faith. By faith we overcome. What is that? We believe God. We trust God. In spite of what's going on around us, in spite of the circumstance and the situations that, that God places us in, the sovereign God of the universe knows all of these things, doesn't he? So we lift our eyes to him. And I don't know who made the observation, but you cannot look any higher. You can't look any higher than heaven or the throne of God. 
To whom would you turn? To whom would you go? So when you lift your eyes to heaven, you are putting them at the highest place. The right place. Where God is. But we have to trust God. We have to believe God. What good does it do to just, you know, mouth these words, you know, without any thought or meaning, um, without it being true of us? To just say, well, I look to God. I don't believe he's going to do anything. I don't believe he can do anything. I believe I'm just stuck in this and God can't do it or isn't going to show me any mercy. Well, James said, you might as well not ask for anything then. You're double-minded, and the Lord won't answer any of your prayers anyway. But when you cry out to God in faith, you must believe. Believe that He's the sovereign God of the universe who has appointed all the details of your life. So lift your eyes to Him in faith. And what? You know, we're kind of reading ahead a little bit. We've already read it, but thinking ahead a little bit. What is it specifically that causes him to lift his eyes to God in faith and in trust? It is the fact that God is merciful. God is a God of mercy. This is how he got there. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Because God is merciful. You know, never fight any temptation you have to think otherwise. God is merciful. What does that mean, that God is merciful? Well, remember that Mercy and compassion are, are very closely related in the scriptures. Compassion is the emotion or the feeling, the sentiment, the compassion, the pity. But that's not enough. What if God just felt sorry for us? What if God just had pity on us? Well, poor people. You know, they made their own mess, right? But no. Mercy is compassion in action. God actually does something to relieve us of our situation. That's mercy. Like God's mercy in Christ. He not only had compassion on us, but he acted. Acted in giving us Christ. And so mercy is the compassion of God in action. That's what he needed. That's what he was wanting, right? God, take action. Relieve me of this suffering. Relieve me of the scorn and this ridicule. And the application could be to anyone in any trial. Who do you turn to? Turn to God. Our eyes, you know, eyes, eyes, eyes are on God. And when our eyes are on the situation like Asaph, what happens? We start to feel sorry for ourselves. That's what Asaph did. It was kind of a pity party for him. Everybody else says it's so good. I have it so bad.
but our eyes have to be fixed on God, the sovereign God of the heavens. And we must believe that he is a God of mercy. That he is a God who relieves our suffering. I remind you of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you are familiar with these words, where Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God is the Father of mercies. And because mercy is compassion and action and God is acting, he is the father of mercies and then the God of all comfort. And what does the word comfort mean? I remind you, we've talked about this numerous times. And so, you know, it's not just, oh, you know, I hope you feel better. You know, I just try to say some comforting things. Those are helpful. But it literally means to strengthen and to sustain. It's the, it's the paraclete word, remember? The word here uh, is a form of the word paraclete. He is the, the God who is a paraclete for us. And remember, Jesus said he would send another helper. The paraclete, the one who would comfort, the one who would strengthen the one who would sustain us through our journey. And so that's what Paul is saying. He is the father of mercies. He's our father. Remember, we read that earlier. He's the father. He is our father. We are his children. And he is the source of all mercy. And that mercy flows through us as he comforts, as he strengthens, as he sustains us. Like, like Asaph in Psalm 73. I almost slipped. I almost fell. I, I, I felt like I was a goner. But what he didn't know at the time, and he realizes it later because he tells us that all along God was with him, holding him by the right hand. You can read of that in Psalm 73. God was right there. While he was doubting, while he was ready to fall, he thought he was going to slip. But God was holding him up the whole time, sustaining him, strengthening him, holding him with his right hand. What a comfort that is. Even when we are people of doubt and we're struggling with faith. Remember what Paul said in Timothy that um, even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. When he says, even when we're faithless, he's speaking of when our faith is weak, at the weakest. God would have to deny himself not to be faithful to us, and he can't do that. So even when we are weak in our faith, he's right there holding us up sustaining us, strengthening us, keeping us going. So there are times in our own personal trials and struggles 
we say, I can't take it anymore. Okay, that's how you feel. But that's not true. It's not reality. Because God is there holding your hand, strengthening you, keeping you. You may feel that way. But you must remember who you're talking about. You're talking about God who sits enthroned in the heavens, who is the Father of mercies, the Father who always takes action to relieve you of your suffering. And so, as I said, the first thing we notice here is that this is a prayer of faith. It's a conclusion of faith, a conclusion of trust. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Is, is that where you're at? And your struggle and your personal trial may not be exactly like the writers here, but maybe you're going through something, you feel like you're at wit's end, like I just can't go another day with this, then lift your eyes to the heavens. Keep them there. And remember that God is full of mercy. Remember what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations. His mercies are new every morning. You might have a hard day. You might go to bed tired and almost defeated. And the next day, there's just more mercy for you that day. And Micah said, he delights in mercy. God is not stingy with his mercy. He is the father of mercies who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And he's not reluctant with his mercy. He delights in his mercy. It's new every day for you. And so look to him. Let that be your conclusion. God, I lift my eyes to you, you who are enthroned in heaven. And then we see in verses, verse 2, we see that it's not only a prayer of faith, but it's a prayer of humility. There's a, a humbleness to this prayer. He follows up verse 1, his declaration, his proclamation, as it were, with an illustration. He's going to illustrate what he's talking about. Behold, look. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Now, what's that all about? I'm going to confess. I'm just going to tell you something. I may have been wrong about this. I've explained this passage before. And something occurred to me yesterday as I was reading John Calvin's thoughts on this. Something struck me that I hadn't noticed before. Now, it might be that I was describing it right all along. Well, the idea is that you have a servant standing ready, right? Ready to serve. And a servant 
can't talk in the, the room, you know, the, the, the throne room or the dressing room. You have the prince and princess, the king or the queen, and you have a servant in the room with them. And the servant is just waiting for some kind of a gesture. You should, they, often they wouldn't even say anything. They would just motion with their hand. Like if you're eating. I'm just saying, they just, or. You don't have to talk. You just, you look for a gesture from the hand. And so as the servant looks at the hand of their master, waiting for some signal of what to do next, well, that's what we're like. We're like that servant, the humble servant, just looking for a gesture from the master on what to do next. That might be right. But there's another dimension at least to it. What I wasn't thinking about before is that our eyes look to our God till he has mercy on us. The servant is the, the lowliest of all people. The servant in those days had no rights. The servant was so lowly that they could, if they're out in public, they could be abused. And they would, I read somewhere that, you know, if, if someone didn't like the master, you know, the king or the queen or the prince, you could abuse their servant and send them back. You know, here you stand in the corner all black and blue. He's just a servant. Who cares? He had no rights, no protection. But there he is, or there she is, just waiting for some detection, something from the hand that would bring them mercy. Perhaps they've petitioned. They've asked for protection. They've asked for safety. They've asked for help. Or maybe they just stand there. A humble, abused servant waiting for some mercy. I mean, that's the picture. Until God has mercy on us, we look to your hand until you have mercy on us like the servant standing there waiting for mercy from their master. That might be the right way to look at it. It doesn't change it a lot because in both scenarios what is the focus look to the hand of the master look to the hand of the master and in our case the master is full of mercy and so we look and the idea here we look to the lord our god till or until he has mercy upon us. What, what kind of a picture is that? It's of waiting. There's patience. You wait. Now that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? You're, you're pleading with God, have mercy upon me. I can't take it anymore. Oh, you who are in the heavens. And I just get impatient and I want it right now. But you have to be a humble servant and wait. 
patience. And in God's time, he will act. Now many find no relief in this life. Let's just be honest. Many find no relief in this life. You may be going through a trial, a difficulty that's going to be a lifelong experience for you. Wait. Be patient. Because one day God will make it all right. And you will receive your reward from your merciful Father while the others go down to destruction. So just wait. It may be a week, a month, years. It may be an eternity. But look to the hand of your merciful Father. Like a servant just standing there waiting. Waiting until he moves. This is a humble prayer. Prayer of a servant. We won't take time, of course, but Jesus, you know, there's the prayer of the publican, prayer of the tax collector. One was just thankful he's not like everybody else, and he recounts all of his deeds, and one can't even lift his eyes to heaven. He just smites his breast. He can't believe that, even, that God would even be merciful to him. That's a prayer of humility. That's a prayer of a servant. And so it's not only a prayer of faith and confidence in God and His mercy, but it's a prayer of humility, a prayer of a servant. And thirdly, very quickly, we see the prayer of intensity, a prayer of earnestness, a prayer of passion. You know, in the Scripture, when things are repeated, it's repeated for emphasis, right? Well, that's what we have here. As the eyes of a servant look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. The repetition indicates intensity. There's passion and earnestness in this prayer. I know that when you're going through or when I go through a trial, the longer it lasts, the more intense we get, the more passionate we get, the more earnest we become. God, please, please, it's been long enough. Please, I feel like Asaph, I'm going to fall here if you don't. Well, that's the, the earnestness of his prayer. We see that through the repetition. And you get that sense of earnestness. And then very quickly, I want, to, want you to notice, this is just a, a simple observation. In verse 1, to you, I lift my eyes. You see that? I lift my eyes. But by the time he gets to the end of verse 2, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he have mercy on us. 
Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have had more than enough. Our soul has had more than enough. And so he switches from, you know, the personal pronoun I, me. But now there is a sense of community in his prayer. It's not just for himself, is it? It's for all of us. You know, one of the problems, I don't know if that's the right word, but one of the the issues is we're going through a trial and we often can only see ourselves, right? We think we're the only ones. And he begins with the proclamation that to you I lift my eyes, but it's all of us. We're all going through this together. Lord, have mercy on all of us. You know, this is the temptation of a person going through a trial. Some extended suffering is that they begin, you know, they're myopic. They they can only think of themselves and their own suffering. And it's hard to include others. It's hard to pray for others. It's hard to identify with everyone else because we are all going through problems. We're all going through troubles. And so there's a sense of community in his earnest prayer. The main idea here, the the, the big idea, is that God is merciful. God is merciful. And we can go to God in prayer and plead with Him to show us mercy. God, show us mercy. Be merciful. Come and act in my favor. Act in our favor to relieve us of the suffering. But we will wait on you. Because you are the one who is enthroned in heaven. You see how he he went through all that? But in the end, Lord, you are the one who's enthroned in heaven. We lift our eyes to you. So the challenge, as I spoke of earlier, just two things, a challenge and some encouragement. The challenge is to trust God. Believe God. Have faith in him. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe sitting upon the throne. Lift your eyes to Him. You cannot lift Him any higher than that. The encouragement is that He is a God of mercy. He loves to be merciful. He's not stingy with it. He's not, you know, hiding it from us. He just states it right there. He loves to be merciful and it's new every morning for you. Believe it. Trust it. And cry out for more. And the Lord will be there as the Father of mercies to comfort you, to strengthen you, to sustain you in all of your afflictions.
May we be people of faith. And may we be encouraged to know that God is merciful. And right now, even if you're not sure about that, He is. He is merciful. I read earlier from 2 Corinthians there. I didn't um, point it out. The first couple of verses are typical salutation, the writer to the receiver. But then as Paul goes into the, 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 um, the praise to God, who is the Father of mercies, that's called the benediction. So wait a minute. Doesn't the benediction come at the end? You know, in our church order of service, we have an invocation, and then in a little while, Kurt will give the benediction. Well, the invocation is to, is an, you know, invoking God. To, it's a call to come and worship the Lord and to invoke the name of the Lord as though to bring the presence of God into our worship. The benediction technically speaks of giving praise. It's a call for praise. That's why it usually comes at the end, before we leave. Let's all praise the Lord. Usually through the reading of Scripture. It could be a prayer, but that's what a benediction does. Well, they see the benediction there at the beginning. What is it? It's all praise and thanks and gratitude and exaltation and honor to God. The benediction to God. And may our own hearts be full of benediction. Because God is the sovereign God of the universe who delights in doing mercy. May he be praised. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of gathering together as a community of faith. And we thank you for uh, the encouragement we receive from the reading of Scripture, praying together, singing together, studying your word together. And now may we all respond to your word in faith, trusting you, knowing that whatever we're going through, it has been designed and um, it has been predetermined by you for our good and your glory. And may we just May our souls rest knowing that you are full of mercy. We praise you and thank you as our merciful God. Amen.